there's a greater purpose in life. There's a greater purpose to everything that we do. And there has to be, right? Like we go through life and we feel like, is this all there is? Is this, there's got to be a greater purpose. And there is, can I encourage you with that? There, there is a greater purpose to the life that we are living. And, and, and Paul, in this book that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, we call it Ephesians, um, it's, it's been called the constitution of the church. And, and we are the church. And the thing that we are uh, discovering through this series is that each and every one of us have a calling of God on our life. How exciting is that? Oh, the way that you have been created, who you are, your likes, your dislikes, your talents, your giftings, all of that. You've been made for something more than we learned in chapter two, that not only have we been made for something more, that we are uniquely crafted. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine says that we are his workmanship or his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus unto for the purpose of good works. Like everything about you was intentional. Like everything about you was so that you would fit hand in glove to the calling of God on your life. And then we learn in chapter three that the fuel for that, like, like what makes that happen, what keeps you going is not fear or guilt or shame. Like you can guilt people into doing things for you, but that's no fun. You can shame them into doing, you can, you can, you can use fear, but, but the, the greatest motivator we found in chapter three is love, that we are supposed to be rooted and grounded in love. And when you are rooted and grounded in love, there's beautiful fruit that comes from that. And it is this never ending source of fuel because God is love. And then chapter four, we said, we're made to actually do more. Like it's okay that you're made the way you are and that you, you have been crafted a certain way and all of that, but it's time to understand that we are made to do more. But where? In the mundane things of life. Like just the everyday, ordinary things of life that you would say are just nothing special. That mundane part of life is what we're supposed to fill with who the fullness of Jesus Christ is in this world because we are the church. Your you're, okay, so, so it's, where you, it's where you live and study and play and work. Those are the areas, that's the mundane areas of our life that are supposed to be filled with the fullness of Christ. And then last week we learned that we are to go more, that, that how do we mobilize all of this? How do we get people in the right place so that they can feel, it's not our job. It's not our job. A very small portion of us are called to go overseas or become what we call missionaries, but the truth of the matter is your calling is much closer than you ever imagined because you're already there. Like God has strategically placed you where you already are. You just don't see that that is your calling, that that's your mission field, that that's where you are. More in the mundane and you're already where your mission field is. And then we're gonna wrap the series up today with this idea that we are made to win more. We have been called to success, like winning more at life because Jesus really does give the victory. Like, have you read the end of the book? We win, right? I've got God wins in the end. We are actually on the winning side. That's true. It's like we, we may not feel like it right now, but we are on our way. Like we are made to win more. Now, so what I see here is that Paul is assuming that we will struggle at this. That we are in a, 
battle, but the idea of feeling victorious doesn't always show up sometimes. And it might be a little bit of a stretch, but here's the thing, like this spiritual battle is raging every day in our life, and, and, and it's in those mundane things that we don't always see the victory happening. It's in our relationships and in our, in our future and in our family, in our, in our witness for Christ and the impact that we have for the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, in all of these areas, you are made to win more. But here's what we like to do, all right? We like to separate the secular from the spiritual. We like to say, well, all right, so, so like here's my work and here's what I like to do for play and here's my hobbies and I like to watch this TV show and, I, and all of these secular types of things. Like we separate that. And then we say, well, then there's the spiritual stuff like reading my Bible and, and going to church and praying and telling people about Jesus and maybe even being generous. Like, like, so there's the spiritual part of my life and then there's this secular part of my life. And what I'm saying is what we are learning here is that the fullness of Jesus makes everything spiritual. That means that, that wherever I am, wherever I go and I'm taking Jesus with me, that means that, that my work becomes a spiritual activity. You're like, oh, you don't know where I work. <laughs> I get it, all right? Maybe you're right. Um, but wherever I work, wherever I study, wherever I play, wherever I live, the people I interact with on an everyday, that all then becomes this spiritual activity. And what Paul says here, what, what, so, so not to make assumptions, but Ephesians chapter 6 is kind of famous for this 11 verses it has about spiritual warfare. It talks about the armor of God and, and the, the, the battle that we are in spiritually. But it's hard to separate that out from everything else he talks about in chapters 5 and 6, which is all relationships. And so like it's, it's not like we're in this spiritual battle for the kingdom of God and then we're supposed to treat our wife a different way or we're supposed to raise our kids a different way. It's all supposed to be spiritual stuff and like that, that's what we're gonna get into just a little bit today but I wanna remind us that we as the church of God, we as the fullness of Christ on this earth are made to win. When Jesus announced the fact to, to Peter that I'm gonna build my church in Matthew chapter 16, he gave us an offensive order. Like he said this, he said, all right, yeah, Peter, what you just said, I'm gonna build my church on that. Matthew chapter 16, 18, he says, and I say unto you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon that rock, upon this truth, I will build my church. Church, And then he says this interesting thing. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? So what he's saying is, if you look at the way that he said, gates don't, gates are not offensive. Gates are defensive, right? So who's on the offensive in this? The church is on the offense. Right? So, so what we see here is an offensive strategy. And most of you are saying, yes, finally something I'm good at. I'm really good at being offensive. That may not be what he's talking about here. But congratulations, you found something, right, that you can identify with. 
We are on the offense in this verse. The gates of hell cannot prevail. They can't withstand against what God is doing in his kingdom. That's what he's saying. We are on that team, right? Oh, I want to talk about the Redskins right now. But like we're on the winning team. That feels really good. Just one of those years. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm being offensive. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, we're just getting ready for the draft. That's our, that's our strategy. I say we, not me, but I'm trying to identify with you. So we are called to win, right? And so we're going to get into three different areas where we are called to win. The first one is, and I already kind of mentioned it, we're called to win in our relationships. In our relationships. And I want you to get this, right? So this is a spiritual thing. This is a spiritual activity. Here's what, here's what he says. He said, the key word that we're going to see over and over again is this, this phrase, as to the Lord. Okay? As to the Lord. So the fullness of Jesus in every area of life is as to the Lord. And, and I'm going to show you this, this thing that I found in chapter 5 and in in chapter 6 that is like, wow, okay, so that really means that in every area of my life, I should do things as to the Lord. That's, that's what it looks like in my relationships. Well, you, don't, you, you don't know who I'm married to, Eric. Yeah, I, I, I probably don't. You probably know them better than most, right? But how we interact in that relationship should be as to the Lord. Yeah, but my kids are, yeah, but my parent, yeah, but my boss, I, I understand. Like, I'm not saying they're not being a jerk. I'm not saying that they aren't human. We're all broken. But our, we're supposed to win in those relationships. How do we win in our relationships as a believer? We win as to the Lord. In other words, that the fullness of Jesus is supposed to be in my relationships too. Let me show you what Paul started saying. Even in, even in chapter 5, verse 1, he says this. He said, I want you to walk in love. Who's he talking? Like, like in, your, in your relationships with each other, I want you to walk in love. And then he gives us what it should look like. <laughs> Talk about setting the bar high. As Christ loved us. Yeah, but you don't know. Yeah, but you know what you've done. But you don't know what my wife, yeah, I know, but, but you know you, and God loved you, right? With all of your stuff, with all of your brokenness, that's how we are supposed to love each other. It says in verse one of chapter five, walk in love in your relationship. And then in verse 22, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. How do I do that? As to the Lord. As to the Lord. And then it also says that husbands and wives should submit to what? each other. How do you do that? As to the Lord. What should that look like? How should my relationship with my wife look? What, what example do I have? As to the Lord. He says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How am I supposed to love my wife? As Christ loved the church. Then he goes on, he says, and gave himself for it. We are naturally selfish. We are naturally selfish people, so, so we are told to be giving and self-sacrificing. That's how we are supposed to be in our relationships. In verse, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, he talks about the relationship of children to the parents. He said, children, obey your parents. Yeah, but how do I do that? Uh, well, 
You do it in the Lord. Like, do you see the pattern? The pattern is that in every area of our life, in every relationship in our life, if we want to win that spiritual battle, if we want to remove it from secular, and if it's going to be spiritual, the way that we win a relationships is in the Lord. And then verse 4, he gets into the fathers instructing your children in the Lord. And then in verses 5 through 9, he talks about the, we would call it the employer-employee relationship, the servant-to-the-master relationship, because they were, servants and masters were going to the same church in Ephesus. And how do we work this relationship out, right? He says, you do it as to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart as to the Lord. So in other words, you're not serving your master, you're serving the Lord. And then he even says in verse nine, he says, masters, the same way with you. You need to be serving the Lord as you are working with your servants, right? Knowing that your master is in heaven. He said, God's all the all's master. That's what he said. God, God is master of everybody. So when you sit together at church, you're all on the same playing field. That we all serve Christ. So the question is then, like, what does it mean? My relationships, if I want to win in my relationships, the question is, what does it mean to love like Jesus? What does it mean to work for Jesus? What does it mean to boss like Jesus? I just made that a verb. What does it mean to be obedient like Jesus was obedient to his father? What does it mean to be like Jesus in our relationships? That's how we win at relationships. That's what the fullness of Christ looks like in every area of life. Because here's the thing, right? There is a greater purpose for you being on this earth than your comfort and your happiness. There's a greater purpose. We are made for more. So how can we elevate these relationships to a place where God is glorified, that God is honored, and that the kingdom of God grows. That's what we need to be looking for. There's more to, there, there's more to life than a pay raise. There's more to life than a nicer house and a bigger car, or maybe a bigger car and a nicer house. That may be work. But there's more to life than that. And this life is so short compared to all of eternity. What are we doing in this life that's gonna count for all of eternity? What are those relationships look like for the 70, 80 years you're here on earth that will affect all of eternity? There's a greater purpose in that. We are to win at relationships. And then he also said this, that we are supposed to win the battle from without. And this is what we typically see in this chapter. Like we are looking at the battle that we are in as the people of God with the forces of Satan, right? He says this in verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The enemy is actively trying to thwart what the church of God is trying to accomplish. Not just damaging your relationships, but damaging your effectiveness in this world. He wants to hinder your fullness of Christ in us, restricting your expression of his fullness in the life that you live, to others and in this world, in your calling, the calling that's on your life. The battle we are fighting is against powers that are, that are beyond the visible realm. So then what are we told to do? Like what is Paul giving us instruction for? What are we being told to do 
in relation to this unseen enemy, this, these principalities that, that are without the church, that are without us. He gives us very similar instruction. I, what I love is that the play is not changing much. He says this in verse 10, 11, and 18. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So he's like, yeah, take the step, right? I mean, you're, 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 you feel called. I want you to take that step of faith, but you have to understand that it's Jesus keeping your head above the water. So be strong in the Lord. And then he says this, I want you to put on the whole armor of God. I, okay, faith, salvation, truth, peace, righteousness. Put this on Read through verses 10 through 20 and say, all right, I need, I need to put this armor on. I need to, I need to make sure that I'm living righteousness, that I'm, that I'm living in the truth, that I have peace. Like I am, I am suiting up the armor. I'm putting on the armor of God because there is a real enemy. And ultimately he loses. But if he can't take me to hell, he wants to make my life hell on earth. And so we suit up against that. And then verse 18, he says this, praying always in the Spirit. So do what you can. Live out the calling of God on your life, but always in the spirit of prayer. Lead with prayer, that indwelling Holy Spirit. Stay in constant communication with him. That's how we win the battle from without. And then there's this battle from within. We are supposed to win the battle from within. We want to believe that the battle is all out there, right? That it's all those bad people, all that stuff, all the systems of this world. And, you know, I mean, Paul speaks of principalities and powers. And he's likely referring to the systems of oppression that this world has from without. But I want to mention this to you, that there are systems of oppression within the church. And there are systems of oppression within your own self. And they hinder... What you can do, they make you stumble before you even get out of the gate. They weigh us down and, and they make us ineffective. They take our potential and set it aside. And the first thing is the ifs and whats, right? So, so we ask these, like, well, if and, and what ifs. So we have these ifs and what ifs that can sabotage our calling, and we feel like God has called us into something. And we, we feel like, man, you know, and, and listen, I've been hearing it from you. Like over the last several weeks, I am loving the stories that I'm hearing where you're like, yeah, I think maybe God has put this on my heart. I think, yeah, I think this is something that God wants me to do. And I'm telling you, you have to be careful because there's a battle within that you have to win. Like there's this battle within where you're like, yeah, if... Or what if, and we start to lose the battle before we're even doing anything. Like we, we sabotage ourselves from within. Like God is clearly speaking to you. But then you just brush it aside because you've got doubts, right? It's a tool of Satan. So, so here's, the, here's the thing. So the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, you have Jesus getting baptized. And in the baptism of Jesus, you have God the Father, God the Spirit descending like a dove, and Jesus getting baptized. You have all members of the Trinity present at one time right there. And God the Father says this about his son. He said, this is my beloved son. 
my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus goes off into the wilderness and he fasts. He doesn't need anything for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says, obviously, that when the 40 days was up, he was hungry. All right? Then the tempter comes to him in chapter 4, verse 3, and says, And the tempter came and said, The very first word out of Satan's mouth, if you are the Son of God. What did God just tell Jesus? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the first thing Satan does is question his identity. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. You're hungry. Let's get the job done here. If you are. So this is, this is my opinion. After doing some research on that, I don't think the if was so much questioning the identity of Jesus because there are other translations that say since you are the Son of God. But here's my point with this, right? It may not have been so much that the devil was doubting who Jesus was, but was hoping to get Jesus to doubt the goodness of his Father. By asking him something like this, well, why would he ask you to go hungry like that for 40 days? Why doesn't he love you enough to have food ready for you when you come out of the wilderness? Doesn't he want to provide for you? Do you see what, you see the doubts? You see what Satan's trying to do here? Like he's trying to, to, and Jesus is having to win that battle from within, doubting the goodness of his father, doubting the provision of his God. How could this be his plan for your life? Really? He's doubting. He's causing the ifs and the what ifs. He told Jesus that he had every right to do for himself what apparently God was not willing to do for him. Since you're God, right? If you're God, go ahead. Turn, the, turn this rock into a loaf of bread for yourself. Do what you don't think God's going to do for you. Man, that's a whole sermon right there. That, that little piece right there will preach. But in the three temptations of Jesus, every one of them started with an, with an if. If you are, if you will, and then if you are. It's a tactic of Satan. And what he does a lot of times is he inserts some truth with a little bit of lie. So when he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, has God said? Right? Has God said? He misinterprets. He changes things just enough to get you to doubt. So I'm saying God is calling you into some kind of ministry. God is calling you to change lives in the world that you live in. You are called to be the fullness of Christ in your family, where you live, where you work, where you study, where you play. That's God's calling on your life. You have been uniquely handcrafted by God for this calling of God on your life. And as soon as you put your hand up, you're going to hear, really? But what about, and you're going to listen to those internal voices that will sabotage your calling. That's the battle from within that you have to win. All right, all right. Then the next, there's this. Not only these internal doubts. And I, I wrote and rewrote this probably a dozen times. So, so here's what we got. This is, this is the other way. These are the other internal things, and I'm going to call them oppressive assumptions that can render you fruitless. These are certain ideals that we have believed for so long 
about God, about ministry, that make us ineffective. It is the, the North American church. The North American church has, has almost become neutered in its effectiveness for Christ in this world. And I think a lot of it is because of these oppressive assumptions that we believe. Can I give a few of these to you that, 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 that I have compiled? First is that church is what we do on Sundays. Church is not a program. It's not an organization. It's not a social club. It is the, club. It is the body of Christ going into the darkest corner of every part of society, bringing the light of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ into the, every single day of the week. So there's a phrase that we use all the time, and I'm saying we because I'm just as guilty as you are. How about this, right? Let's go to church. All right, let's go to church. Hey, let's go to church. You know, I know what you mean when you say that, but hidden within that warped phrase is this view of church that basically sums up, says this, that it's a place we go to consume goods and services prepared for us by professionals. That's what it means when we say, let's go to church, right? Let's go to church. Let's pull up in a parking lot that somebody paved. Let's go in and put our kids in the nursery so they can change the kid's diaper. Let's get coffee that somebody else made for us. Let's enjoy the, the light that's been turned on. All the doors are unlocked. We come in here and we have great worship. That band has practiced long and hard. We have a, you know, a life-changing message. A little bit generous to myself. But we have, we have all of this done. And that's what we mean by go to church. And please continue to come. I like having you here. But this is not... The church, the church is here. You're here, right? The church meets here. But it's so hard for us not to say that. So like I'm always correcting myself, right? How about if I meet you over there at the church building? Because like I have to always remind myself, like we're not going to church. We, we's it. We is it. We is the church. We, we take the church with us wherever we go. We are the church. But if we live like this, if this is what church is, then we have created an oppressive system, an oppressive assumption that we have divided the secular with the spiritual. And church is what you do on Sunday. No, church is who you are. And you take that with you everywhere you go. Another oppressive assumption is that only professionals can be ministers. That thought comes from a lot of places, one of them being hell. But regardless of your church tradition or your misconstruction or misinterpretation of Scripture, that statement is simply not true. You are the ministers. On our, listen, listen, you are here to minister to each other. You are ministers. That's what we do. You hear of a need. How can I help? I want to minister. I want to bring ministry to somebody. That's what we are called to do. We are all ministers. We are to share life in this world with other people. We are ministers. It's not the clergy's job to do ministry. It's our job to do ministry. So church is what we do on Sundays. Only professionals can minister. And this is my favorite one. 
pastors are specialer than people. There's a lot of intentionality behind that. I just make up my own words because it fits better, right? We believe, though, there's just something more specialer about pastors. Like, like pastors are more specialer than other people. Listen, let me just tell you this as, as honestly as I can. We are, we are not better. We are not smarter. We are not more called or more chosen or more blessed or more spiritual or more important to this church. On our best day, we are simply servants who try and do what God has called us to do. Yeah, but Eric, like you get up every Sunday. I get it, right? This is not anything I ever thought I would do in my life. I can promise you that. When I was in ninth grade, here's how it happened. When I was in ninth grade, I went to this youth rally thing. And I'm sitting up in the balcony by myself. My mom and dad dropped me off. I wasn't even with the church group. Now you feel bad for me. I'm up in the balcony by myself. I mean, there's other people in the room, but I felt alone. Pastor's up there talking about ministry. He's up there talking about what they called full-time Christian service. And he said this, he said, he said, God's calling many of you into this vocation. And I'm thinking, he ain't calling me. And hear me, I've never been called into ministry other than the fact that I'm a believer. And then he made this statement. I'm in ninth grade. Like, I'm, I, don't know any, I don't know any better. I'm still squeezing zits and looking at girls, man. I, I am, I'm in ninth grade. I don't know nothing about nothing, okay? I don't know nothing about God. I, I mean, I, I got, when I was nine years old, I accepted Christ. We started going to church when I was about 12. I got baptized when I was 13. And like, I'm barely out of that. Like, I don't even know all the books of the Bible yet. And he made this statement and he goes, you know what? If you don't feel called, let me give you something. God takes volunteers. Oh, I can do that. And I raised my hand. And I volunteered. I was in ninth grade. And it sounded like a good idea. But I never felt called into full-time Christian service. So I go on through my high school years. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life, where to go to college. My mom and dad are like, hey, remember when you were in ninth grade and you volunteered and you told Jesus you were gonna go into full-time Christian service. I'm like, yeah, okay, so what does that mean? You probably ought to go to Bible college. That's a pretty big commitment. So I found a Bible college up in New York that was one year. Word of Life Bible Institute, and I went there. Lived in Florida, flew all the way to New York to go to college. That's before cell phones, people. You got that one call a week. Hey, mom and dad, I'm fine. So I go up there, and I learned what it was like to read my Bible every day and pray and spend time with the Lord in the beautiful woods in the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. And God did a work in my heart. And I came home and I started mowing lawns for a living and working at Firestone changing tires because I didn't know what my next step was. And I was going to a church and I would sometimes sing at that church and so I'm singing 
And this lady goes, you need to go. I know somebody at Trinity Baptist College up in Jacksonville, Florida. You need to go there and try out for the singing team that they have. And I did, and they, they uh, accepted me. And so that's where I ended up going to college. That's where I got my bachelor's degree in church ministries. And that's where I met my wife. And, and here we are. But I'm saying it didn't start off this way, right? I'm just saying that, that we think that pastors are specialer. We're not specialer. We're just like you, right? We're just, we just decided to take a step and then another step and then another step. My question for you is what is your step? And your step's not gonna lead you to where I am. It's gonna lead you to what God's plan for your life could look like. I mean, this is exciting stuff. We're made for more. And we get to the end of this thing and we're like, wow, I didn't have any idea I was gonna get to here just by doing that. So what you're wrestling with right now is that what is that, that what's that urge? What's that, what's that thing that I believe God has made me for? What is that thing that's burning in my heart? What are my gifts, my passions, my stories? What is that that God can use for his kingdom? Man, we're so used to being recipients, aren't we? We're so used to being consumers. I come to church to get, I love coming because of this, or I get that, and I appreciate that. We try hard. We really try hard. We do a lot of things very intentionally to make this time here valuable to you. But I want to mobilize you. Like I want you to become who God wants you to be for his kingdom. But let's not relegate our calling to somebody else who's a paid professional. Let's not think that pastors are something super special or they're not. We're just people. The more you get to know me, the more you realize that. I disappoint you. Like, I have a very low bar. I do that on purpose because, like, I'm just a regular guy. You can do this. It's not like clergy and laity. There's no special, like, clergyness gene that I got. I promise you. It's just, yeah. If you knew me then, right, I was the class clown. I know that's hard for you to believe. That's just how I rolled. We're not special or we're just figuring out what God wants us to do with our life and trying to do it. A couple other false assumptions that we make, these, these oppressive things. Really quickly here, very, uh, I don't want to keep you. Building the church rather than the kingdom. Building the church. Rather than the kingdom, we get this idea that like, you know, God's really doing a work at Virginia Hills and it's really growing. And I'm, and I'm glad for that. I, th- I, th- I think it's beautiful what God is doing here because it's not, it's his job to do this. But we can't focus on that. We have to focus on building the kingdom. And that's wherever you are. That's wherever you go. The church is almost like a means to an end. Like, like it's, it's, it's we are here to to grow his kingdom. We're here to encourage each other, to, to equip each other, to enable each other, to pray for each other, to minister to each other so that we can grow the kingdom. And if God chooses to grow Virginia Hills Church, fantastic. But Jesus didn't say, go build my church. He just said to go. He didn't say, go build a big church. He said to go. And that's what we are called to do. And then finally here, one of these assumptions is this, that we, we begin relationships with agendas instead of love. What's in it for me? 
What's in it for me? Hey, I got people like that in my life. The only time they call me is when they need something. We got them all, right? But we're the same way. Like we are often guilty of building relationships with an agenda. Do people have to live a certain way for you to love them? Do they have to change before you let them in? For years, the church has had their pet gripes with culture. And it changes from decade to decade, doesn't it? Like back in the 70s, it was this. The 80s, it was this. The 90s, and here we are. Like it's always something that we're against. And we become known more for what we're against than what we're actually for. What a shame is that. And I'm not ignoring the fact that people need to change. But we're supposed to be rooted and grounded in love. And the fruit of that ought to be evident to other people. And at the end of the day, we're all just broken people. Some people are just broken in a different place than we are. And some people are broker than we are. Right? I sure am glad somebody loved me. I'm sure I'm glad that God saw my brokenness and gave his son. You know what they accused Jesus of? Drunkenness, gluttony, sexual impurity. Just because he hung around the wrong people. Just because he was loving them. Are we trying to fix people or just love them? Like, you know, are we trying to, to make a difference or are we just trying to make a point? I want to love people, and I don't do it very well, but I want to love people. And I know, here's the, here's the problem. Like, you're already countering that statement in your mind with, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, they can't, yeah, but this society, yeah, but if we, your yabbits are what's getting us in trouble. Your yabbits are the assumption that you make about people that God can't fix them if you just love them. And I'm not saying that all we do is love them and never address the problem. I'm just saying we start with loving them. That's our first step in that direction. But when people have to meet certain conditions before you let them in, you ain't getting a chance to love them. When they brought the woman to Jesus and they were going to stone her for adultery, they all disappear. Jesus looks up at her and says, where are your accusers? She said, they've all gone. And what's the first thing he says to her? Neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. We've got it reversed. We want to tell people, you stop sinning, then I won't condemn you. We're, we're called to love. And if you can't love well, it's because you're putting conditions on your relationship with people. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. These oppressive assumptions oppose kingdom building 
and they cause us to be ineffective. But here's, the, here's a reminder, right? Here's a reminder. We are the primary means to manifest Christ's presence in this world. There's a lot of ways he does it. You look at creation, people think, wow, this is beautiful. I mean, people post stuff, right? Like it's just gorgeous. Man, this is amazing. Look what God did. But we are the primary means to manifest Christ's presence in this world. And we are guaranteed the victory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said this, he said in verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 57 and 58, he said, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Period. Boom, we could stop right there. That would have saved us like 30 minutes of preaching, but I waited to put it at the end so I could keep you here. And then he goes on to say this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be as steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in what? The work of the Lord. So yeah, we're going to win. Like we have the victory. We are called to win more. We are made to win more. But win at what? We got to be doing something. He says the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in the vein of the Lord. I'll leave you this. Like, like your right now counts forever. Whatever it is you're doing right now counts for all of eternity. That's a big deal. Every relationship, every moment, every activity counts for forever. That's a big deal. We're made for more. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. Thank you for the victory that you promised us. Thank you for even wanting to partner with us to build your kingdom Help us to take these oppressive assumptions, these what's and what ifs and, and all the doubts that we stir up in our own hearts. Help us to, to just push those aside and love people well and help us to have the confidence that if you've called us into it, that you'll see us through it. Because faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. And I pray, Father, you would just help us to live into the calling on our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.